So today we uh, speak of a kingdom, and there's a lot of kingdoms. There have been a lot of, um, and uh, some of them we've heard about, learned about, the famous ones like Egypt or Rome, and uh, in those places there are many emperors or kings. Uh, in Rome, take Rome for instance, there's you know dozens and dozens of Caesars. But as <clears throat> as kings come and go, uh, the kingdom remains. And so when we think of like the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of whatever, uh, we're thinking of a particular place. We're thinking of buildings and walls and land and all of that. Uh, when it comes to our kingdom, which is, as we'll see today, is the kingdom of heaven, uh, there's one king. And if that king isn't there, the kingdom isn't there. And that, so, therefore, there's uniqueness as there is to him. And so, we have to understand that for us, we have the king. Uh, where is his presence? And he's not here on earth. He's in our bodies. Uh, so, because we have the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, all believers in the church age have him indwelling them. That we have the kingdom of God, we say within us, and then that becomes, a, believe me, it becomes this very tricky theological thing. Um, and so we'll see what that means. We do not have the kingdom of God here on earth uh, because we need him. We need his presence. Uh, now, in our passage, he is on earth. And then the kingdom is being offered to the people of God. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 3 again, and let's uh, begin with prayer and be thankful and grateful for God and his word, being ready to learn his word and be uh, enlightened by uh, this particular topic, one of many in the word of God that is so very important. So with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you guide us in the truth of all things. Thank you that you have given us a kingdom and have given us the means and the truth by which we know how to live for that kingdom. And therefore, we know how not to live, or I should say to live not for uh, the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, we are in them, Father, and that we have to exist in earthly kingdoms. Uh, we know, Father, that they are not our true home. We thank you that you have given us a true home through our King, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through his cross. And so as we continue in this gospel and see the, the realities and the truths of our Lord, may our hearts be enlightened. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. 
So as I've been saying, the main theme of chapter 3 is the coming of the king. And uh, as we'll see here in a minute, uh, there's really no kingdom without him. Uh, We, again, think of kingdoms as places. In this case, the kingdom is a place. There's multiple, multiple passages of prophecy that declare it to be a place. You can call it Zion. It's God's hill. It's God's mountain. Uh, And it is going to be in a literal place. It will be literally here on earth. It's just not here now. Uh, But if someone were to carve out a place in Zion and call it God's kingdom and, uh, you know, whatever, it's a silly thought. But without the king there, there is no kingdom. And therefore, the emphasis on this subject is not the kingdom, but the king. And that must, he must take priority over whatever else we think about the kingdom. And we'll see application to that. Um, And this transition from, in chapter 3, from uh, the law, say, from the Mosaic law, in which John is performing a ritual, it's unique to John, his water baptism. It does not look like, it has similarities to Old Testament washings, but not really. It has many dissimilarities. And so it's unique to John, but as John said, someone greater than me is coming and he's going to baptize you. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus repeats those exact words right before he ascends to heaven. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are like, are you bringing in your kingdom now? And he says, it's not for you to know, but remain here in Jerusalem. And you will receive power from on high. And then he says, just like John did, John baptized you with water. I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so there's, you know, this entrance into this kingdom uh, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not, this is a permanent thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit enters you in union with Christ. And it's completely permanent and forever. And so we have the king under him, the kingdom under him, under that is the means by which we enter the kingdom. And so we, what, ha- what can happen and false doctrines come from it is when you take the importance of, say, the king and put him under like the baptism. And then people get all overwhelmed with the doctrines of the baptism of the spirit. And they forget about the king. All right? And so we have to keep things in their priorities. Keep our doctrine straight, so to speak. So as we continue to work through chapter 3, we're going pretty slow here with John's opening statement because it's important that we understand what these mean. So now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. On Tuesday, we looked at wilderness, and he said, repent. Yesterday, we looked at repent. And then repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, this Greek word, which I'll put on the board for you in a second, means to be near. And that's agnizo. It means to be near. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is near. In fact, it's very near. And there's another passage where it says, in fact, it very much sounds like it is here. So hold your place here and go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12:22. 12, and what we want to establish... First off, is that the kingdom of heaven, when John is speaking this, 
is not in heaven, it's here, it's near. Uh, near meaning the king is about to come on the scene. Sometime after, this is probably about, oh, I'd say roughly about halfway through his ministry, a good year to two into his ministry, uh, Jesus has become exceptionally popular in the area because of his miracles, because of his ability to do signs and wonders. And here comes uh, another time where he's going to uh, perform a miracle. In 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute, mute man spoke and saw. Now, it was a belief among the Jews that if a mute, that if you're going to exercise a demon, you had to get the name of the demon. At least the rabbis speak of this. So we can say tentatively that this is the means here of why they're so fascinated with this, of the many miracles that Jesus has done, in that this man can't speak, and so they can't get the name of the demon. So if that's the case, whether it is or not, is not really of all importance because they, of what they say is what is important. In verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, when they mean son of David, they mean Messiah. They know what Messiah is. These are Jews. They're brought up with this. In a pagan world, pagan world wouldn't know anything about it, but the Jews do. And so, is, can this be the son of David? Can he? Now, the Pharisees hear this, and they're very disturbed by this because they're very jealous of Christ. And just like any, you know, all who have rejected him, they're going to hate him for who he is. They're going to hate him and did hate him for what he exposed about them. He was wise and strong and, and wiser than them, stronger than them. Not to mention, they couldn't do a, the smallest miracle. He does them thousands of them a day. And so, they're jealous. And so, instead of accepting him, all the evidence points to the fact that he is the Messiah. He has presented himself as such. When we get this far in Matthew, we'll see it. It's overwhelming, the evidence of him being the Messiah. In verse 24 then, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is another name for Satan. And we know this. This is not some underling to Satan. He is the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. He's stating a general principle of the, of the, of the world, of history. It's a natural principle. If a house or a group is divided, it won't stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and that is true, the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, that's a different Greek verb. Uh, this word means to be upon you. It means really to be on you. And in fact, it's almost, or we could even say that the kingdom of God is here. Now, please note here that he doesn't say kingdom of heaven. He says kingdom of God. And so we've got to iron that out a little bit because some people think that they're different. Um, and back in Matthew 3, 
John says the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. Uh, so the kingdom. So it says here, Christ says, "Look, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, that means I'm the King, and therefore the kingdom of God has come upon you." We should note here in chapter 12, we're you know nearing the end of chapter 12. That's where the great transition in Matthew's gospel takes place. The center of the chiasm is in chapter 13. The whole, cha- the whole gospel of Matthew fits into a chiasm pattern. So in this major transition, the kingdom of God is taken off the table as an offer. He has offered it to them. The, John says, we must. this is important for us to understand, that John is saying, repent for it's near and therefore it's being offered to that generation. That kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom, is being offered to that generation. And when they say this, he says that this sin is unforgivable. It doesn't mean that they're going to hell for it. It's just that they can repent of it. But the offer of the kingdom is taken off the table. Forever? No, not at all. But to that generation, the the offer is taken off. So when John said, look, the axe is at the root of the trees in 3.10, John the Baptist says, and he warns them, the axe is at the root of the trees. It is here in chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, that that axe cuts the trees. All right, back to Matthew 3. And so at hand is this Greek verb, agnizo. And you have two gammas together in Greek. It's a GN sound. I know that you've been dying to know that. So, But it's agnizo and What's somewhat significant about this verb is that it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that the action started in the past and it's still going on. So what John is saying here, and Matthew is careful to put it in the perfect tense. This, you know, it stands out in the Greek, uh, is that the kingdom of heaven has been at hand and it still is now. Uh, if we interpret this perfect tense to mean that it will always be here, uh, that would be going too far. Because some people think that you can interpret a perfect tense like that all the time. That it happened in the past and it goes on forever. That's not always the case. The case here is that up to this present time, the kingdom of heaven is still here or near. Now, why is it near? It's because the king is on the earth and he's coming. He's coming very soon. And, and when we finish this section, we'll see that John baptizes him. And it's fantastic to see why Jesus allows himself to be baptized by John. And I, you know, and I would say this, this whole study, uh, and, I, and as we slow down and get into things, you might tend to, I would encourage you again to read the Gospel of Matthew, even sections of it as we go through it. Uh, you know, whenever you can, so that because I can't keep, I can't read it for you all the time. But um, so you, you know, you keep in mind and what's here and don't get lost in it. But what uh, the, this study is going to show us the magnitude of the plan of God for all history and the work of the one who is this Son of Man, this Son of God, uh, it is so vitally important uh, 
Uh, we're going to be looking at him. We're not going to get a lot of instruction. Well, when we get to chapter 5, we will. The Sermon on the Mount is going to really knock us, knock us silly, as it always does. But in, up to that point, our focus is on the Lord, and, and so it should be. You know, we're looking at him. We're looking at our king. We're learning about him, and it's of him and him alone that we're going to find our peace. It's him and him alone that we're going to find really what life is truly about. And if we discover that, we've, you know, really started on our way to maturity. And maturity is for the purpose of fellowshipping with God in a life that uh, is brings honor and glory to him. All right, so what is the kingdom of heaven? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, there's a lot of theories about this. Uh, if you've ever heard of it, amillennialism or, or postmillennialism, uh, they have different views on this than I do, which I suspect are your views as well. Uh, but the kingdom of heaven, is it something different than what the Old Testament prophets saw? Is it different than the kingdom of God? Right? We saw in Matthew 22 that Jesus said, the kingdom of God is upon you. Maybe he means something different than John, who's saying it's the kingdom of heaven. Well, I can tell you that in the scripture, the scripture doesn't make a difference. And some try to make a difference between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, but it's really not there. Now, you might be of the opinion that it is there, and you're entitled to that opinion. That I and the scripture don't see it, and I am not alone in that. As many expositors and really good commentators who think they are. Some think they're identical, some think they're slightly different. Of course, there's always someone who thinks that they're going to be really different. Uh, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven more than anybody else. And we don't really know why he does that. There's theories for why he does that, but nobody really knows. Uh, you have to ask him. Again, theories are just theories. So, uh, <clears throat> believers in the church. So, do we have this kingdom amongst us now? Obviously not. Look around. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't even have to say that. But some will say, well, the kingdom of heaven is in my heart. And I think I've said that in the past, too. And we have to caution ourselves on that because, um, well, we'll see. But believers in the church, what you have is the most important aspect of the kingdom, which is the king. And therefore, we have the ability to live the life of the kingdom. So when we say that, if we say the kingdom of heaven is in our hearts... Uh, that's okay as long as you don't think that it's the literal kingdom of God in your heart because the kingdom of God, according to all the Old Testament prophets, is a literal physical place. And that ain't in your heart. So you see what I mean? So when I have the kingdom of heaven in my heart, or if I use that terminology, what I have to really mean is that I have the ability to live, because I have the king indwelling my body, I have the ability to live in the rules and the manner of the life of the kingdom. And this is really of the most exciting calling that anybody could be given because, like in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul intimates or suggests that he went to heaven and came back. In other words, he went to God, whisked him off to heaven, he saw heaven. He wasn't allowed to tell anybody and then he came back. Uh, there's a, a really great movie made out of that, uh, Heaven Can Wait. You know, that's a really fun movie. So imagine that you went to heaven. 
You were there in a resurrection body. You saw it. You fellowshiped with God. You were there. You spent time there. There is no time there. So let's say you spent, felt like a million years. And then you came back to earth. But for us on earth, on earth, it was a blink of an eye. And here you are. And now God says, live the life that I've given you. It would be the most exciting thing. But in essence, without the trip to heaven, that's exactly what we've been given. In the church, we have been given the life of the kingdom, the wisdom of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom. Uh, we've been given the love of the kingdom. And uh, we, therefore, before we get there, in a world that has no desire for it, you know, we can be lights of the kingdom to the world. I mean, really, I shouldn't say of the kingdom. I mean of the king. We could be lights of the king to the world. Now, there are seven, several dominant views on what the kingdom of heaven refers to. The amillennial view is that there is no kingdom of heaven, uh, but uh, in that they don't really think that there is absolutely no kingdom, but uh, that the kingdom of heaven is in heaven. So um, the theory there is that, you know, uh, the kingdom is up there in heaven, the victory is up there in heaven, and you'll be a part of it when you get there. They totally reject the uh, idea that there is going to be a literal physical kingdom here on earth. So they think Christ died, resurrected, he was victorious, he went to heaven, he established the kingdom in heaven. And then when all believers go there, they're a part of it. It's a nice theory as far as theories go, but it doesn't jive with the scripture. It's not scriptural. Postmillennialism is even worse. That's the fact, that's the idea that we can make the that the gospel will be so prevalent on the earth and so successful and change people's hearts that the, I, the uh, earth will become a good place to live and then Christ will return and get us. And that's not scriptural either. I am of the premillennial view, and I think you are as well, which is that this kingdom that is spoken of here is the Old Testament kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom that is prophesied in the Old Testament that was offered by Christ to Israel when he came at the first advent. They rejected him. He took that offer off the table, but he didn't take the kingdom away. He postponed it, and he will establish his kingdom on earth, literally, physically, in Revelation 20, for 1,000 years at his second coming. And that is the biblical view. All right, do you get all that? So, how is it near? How is the kingdom near? It is being offered to Israel, and if they, in reality, we have to say, if enough of them repent, as John indicates, then that generation shall have the kingdom. They did not repent, and they rejected Jesus. That is ultimately gets to its ultimate peak in Matthew chapter 12. And then the offer is taken off the table. <clears throat> One of the things to notice about this is that neither John nor Christ explain what they mean by kingdom of heaven. They never once do it. Jesus says the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is near, and neither Jesus nor John explains it. <clears throat> and that <clears throat> is because the Jews know what it is. Every, all the Jews know of it. They knew of it. <clears throat> so it's a, not a rule of God in the heart. It's not a spiritual kingdom. It's a literal earthly kingdom that all the Jews knew about. Or else they would have had to explain what they meant. And they did not. 
So first, the scripture does not clearly differentiate between the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. They're used interchangeably in certain places. And Matthew uses kingdom of heaven more often than all the others. He uses it over 30 times. But Matthew also uses the phrase kingdom of God. We just saw that in Matthew 12. So they're used interchangeably. We have ideas of why Matthew used kingdom of heaven, but we don't really know. All right, so those are just nuts and bolts taken out of the way. You've got to know all that stuff. You know, you've got to know the whole word of God, and you've got to know what's what. So the kingdom of heaven here is, again, not the emphasis of the place, what it looks like. I think in modern, uh, really, for a long time, modern Christianity has been kind of infatuated with the fact that we've become very individualistic, as you know, and we think about ourselves in the kingdom, you know, this, and our emphasis can overly be on the kingdom. I can't wait to be in my house that Christ made for me. I can't, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I can't wait to be in paradise. I can't wait until I have no more problems. I can't wait to be out of this body and in a new resurrection body where I don't have any back pain anymore or headaches or whatever. Um, and my emphasis is on me. That's okay to a certain point, but when you forget about the king and you overemphasize your place, you know, in this beautiful place, then, um, well, you're, you're out of the, 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 true, the truth of this. And, and the truth of it is, is that it's the kingdom of God. God is the subject. So it's God's kingdom. It's the God. It's God ruling. This has become uh, you never see in the Bible, except in one instance in Matthew, but and you never really see in the Bible kingdom used by itself. It's always His kingdom or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. There's one instance where Christ talks about the sons of the kingdom. But even in that case, he's talking about sons which have a father. So you could really say that in that instance that it is the father's kingdom that he mentions there. <clears throat> so again, when we think of kingdoms like Egypt or Rome, whose rulers come and go, and yet that kingdom goes on, there are many Caesars. But when it comes to this kingdom, there is only one king. And if he's not there, there is no kingdom. <clears throat> So again, the gospel, which is the entire truth concerning the person of Christ, must not become about you and you alone. If we start thinking about, again, we in America, not just America, but in Western modern Christianity, uh, the gospel has become a whole lot about us, you know. And uh, we forget about the fact that it is really Christ that gets the glory. So, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is the sovereign rulership of Christ. The sovereign rulership of Christ is kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. For the reason of him, the kingdom is glorious, it's righteous, it's just, it has all its characteristics because of who he is. And that's what makes it awesome, is him. So, it's not an awesome place. No, it is. It's an awesome place. But it's him. Right? He is the subject of it. It's his rule. It's his reign. It's his law. It's his redemption. It's his 
work. It's his forgiveness. It's his cross that makes it. And we are the recipients of it by grace. And therefore, we should never forget to keep him and him alone emphasized. Now, just to mark this down, we'll get there in a little bit, but go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's word for word exactly what John said. So, Jesus is saying the same thing. This is at the very start of his ministry. Remember we saw in our our study of the wilderness, that the wilderness is the place of beginnings. And after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he begins his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, again, the kingdom of heaven is God's promised reign. Again, emphasizing God. When John speaks of the kingdom of heaven, John is not the king. They asked him, they asked John, are you the Christ? He said, no, I am not. He said, what he said of himself is, I am a voice calling in the wilderness. So he said, I'm the one that's referred to in Isaiah chapter 40. And so the kingdom of heaven is at hand, again, is God's reign. It's God's promised reign that is on the verge of beginning. Now, can you imagine, if you're a Jew who believes this, you have to be out of your mind excited. You have to be. God's promised reign is here. It's very odd. You know, what about the buildup? You know, where's the buildup? How am I supposed to believe this? Well, God was promised. It's in Malachi that a forerunner would come. In Malachi chapter 3. Uh, In Isaiah 40, John says this, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. All of these Jews know this. You know, it's like, you know, people in in America or wherever, uh, unbelievers who are Gentiles in a secular world, if you say, hey, where is voice crying in the wilderness? No one's going to know that. But to the Jews, they know that. They know, they all know that. I, I I would say the majority of them do. And uh, they don't have chapters and verses yet, so they're not going to say Isaiah chapter 40 because there is no chapter 40. But they know it's in God. they know it's in Isaiah. They know that the prophets have said it. And so here's the forerunner. He's saying that he's the forerunner. The forerunner is saying saying that the king is at hand. This is the very kingdom. Again, we're not explaining kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom that you all have expected, and it is on the verge of being here. <clears throat> so God is now about to take control as he promised. And we cannot imagine the excitement <laughs> of those who have believed it. Uh, <clears throat> and so, you know, those who have believed this would drop everything and follow the king. And that is... That is the challenge that comes to us all. Have you dropped everything to follow him? The concept of God's rule is, now we turn to the Old Testament to see this. The concept of God's rule is fundamental to the entire Old Testament. Uh, So go to Zechariah chapter 14.
There's a long tradition of this throughout the prophets of God acknowledging, and they acknowledge, uh, God's universal rule. Uh, multiple places. My, I was looking them, many of them up today, and my head was spinning with how many there were uh, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, in the Psalms, uh, in the Minor Prophets, and I, all over, all over, that God was going to establish a kingdom. Way back with Abraham. You know, it says that Abraham looked for a city that was not built with hands. Right? There was always this, that God was going to establish a kingdom. You know, and it makes me really ponder, you know, what is really life all about? Um, you know, if the end goal is. You know, what is the end goal? I think you can establish that for yourself. You now, think about that. Well, you know, what is the whole purpose of why you do what you do or why you're called to do what you do or why you have a spiritual gift? Everything that you do in the Christian life, you know, what is the purpose of it all? And when you look to the end of what God has desired for the human race and we see what it is in the end of all things in God's kingdom, then... You know, you see the end, and, and that that there is the purpose. And in that purpose, we are eternally with God, with no barriers, with absolute perfect fellowship, absolute perfect communication, uh, absolute perfect love of which he expresses to us and we express to him. Right now, he is expressing that perfect love to you, but right now, we're not always expressing it back. And there's barriers. There's barriers that are between us and him. There are barriers between us and thinking in the way of the kingdom. Again, the kingdom's not really in my heart, but the way of it can be. If I obey the king, the way of it will be. And so, you know, the end goal is what? That you're with the king. May you live with him, walk with him, speak with him, think with him, do what he does with him. You know, it's really existence, but it's of a special kind of existence. All right, so the, again, long tradition of acknowledging God's universal role over all things. God's universal rule over all things is generally called his universal kingdom. So even though... As we know that Satan is allowed to rule this earth for a time, is he truly the ruler of the earth? He's not. He's just allowed to do some things for a while. God is universally sovereign over all things and always has been, always will be. That's the universal kingdom. But, of course, in the Old Testament as well as in the New, and everybody knows this, that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with mankind. Alongside the continual declaration that God is sovereign over all things and that he's king, you see it passage after passage, uh, that there is something wrong in his world. In his world. Uh, so go to Zechariah 14.9. So here's what God is going to implement and fix this. And this is always the hope of Israel. And it is the hope of, of the church as well now. In Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. 
And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. Psalm 110, verse 2. Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted verse in the Bible, which is, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 48.2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. These are... Uh, marvelous images. These images that, like, uh, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis uh, took and others took and created marvelous allegorical stories out of them. But uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the gospel made all the fairy tales come true. Because what he meant was that everybody wanted, you know, what did we believe in fairy tales? That there was a happy ending, that there was an eternity, that there was a strength, that there was an overcoming, and on and on. And through the gospel, that all became a reality. It's beautiful. So this is the future kingdom. It's not here now. And notice, you're in Zechariah 14, go down to verse 20. It's a lovely that's why I didn't, this is why I didn't put Zechariah on the board and I put the Psalms on the board. Zechariah 14.20, And that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> and this, the reason why this is significant is because that very phrase, holy to the Lord, was engraved on a gold plate that was put on the turban of the high priest. And so... When everybody looked at the at the high priest, that would be the, like the main thing that they saw besides the breastplate. But you'd see this holy to the Lord right across his head. And it would be, so what Zechariah, God is in imagery saying here so wonderfully that the smallest thing is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And like household cooking pots, look at the next line, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. These are like the sacrificial holy instruments in the temple. <coughs> and that's that old, <coughs> excuse me, that the old pot that you have in your cabinet. And it's holy. That's because through and through in this kingdom, the people, the things, everything, the thinking, everything is holy to the Lord. Excuse me. And holy of the Lord means what? uh, uh, Dedicated to him. Obedient to him. Set apart to him. This is the future. This kingdom is coming. So when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, does he mean this kingdom? And he most certainly does. Most certainly. All right. Now, there's a hundred more. Uh, Old Testament passages we can turn to. I know you're super excited that I'm not. So if you go to Daniel, and so that the epitome of this comes in Daniel 7. The whole buildup of the uh, prophetic truth concerning the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is in Daniel chapter 7.
Daniel 7, verse 9. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads and myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. What a vision. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, Daniel, this is halfway through the book of Daniel. It's 14 chapters in Daniel. This is the middle point. Uh, leading up to this, Daniel, we have really a narrative of Daniel's life and then He's had several visions or he's interpreted the dreams of the king. And here now when he comes to chapter 7, first he has a vision of four beasts coming out of the river, out of the sea. And um, those four beasts represent four kingdoms, human kingdoms, not God's kingdom. And then appropriately, <clears throat> after he sees this vision of human kingdoms, then he sees this vision of God. Uh, what's, you know, there's many things here, but uh, the first thing we see, or the first thing I'll point out, is the word thrones. It's not singular, it's plural. It's clear, Hebrew has plural, it's thrones, that's why it's interpreted that, that way. The Ancient of Days here is God the Father, and he took his seat, you know, that's one throne. So there has to be at least one other. His hair is white like snow. You know, why does he have hair? You know, he's depicted in almost human form. The wheels of burning fire, if you know, know about this, uh, God has a mobile throne. I had great fun describing that in one of my assignments this semester. I described his mobile throne as God's hot rod. And there's, uh, you know, if you know of this, it's in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. There are these wheels. They have eyes all over them. There's wheels. With, there's a wheel within the wheel will look like, to me, we're like hubcaps. Uh, there are angels at the four corners of it. They're always singing. I have that like God's stereo system. And then there's an altar in this throne that is a, has the burning coals on it. And like To me, it was like a, this is an engine. And uh, <coughs> this, this throne, you know, it's here. It's here in Daniel. These wheels, it's, they would refer to nothing else. It's what we see. As I, so once we come to know more and more Old Testament prophecy, we start to connect some dots. And what we find about these wheels, one of the times that we see them is that they're leaving. It's when God is leaving. <coughs> Good Lord. That God is leaving Jerusalem. The glory of God is leaving. And he leaves. And uh, that's when they go into captivity. But then, here they are, here he is again, and this is Daniel's vision as he sees him. Now, the ones who are attending him, but in verse 10, the thousands upon thousands are you know, millions, perhaps. We could assume that they're definitely assumed rightly that they're angels. And there are, perhaps, there are probably millions of them. So some are attending him, meaning that they're like servants, and others are standing before him. We see in other passages in the Old Testament that this is likely God's host. It's God's army. And this brings to mind 
Jesus' words to Peter. Peter takes out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter takes out his sword. Jesus says, put the sword in its sheath. And he says to him, he who take the sword, who take up the sword, shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Notice these angels are attending God here in Daniel's vision all the time. But then he says something really interesting here, and it's really quite marvelous. It's something that we have to take to heart. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? He's not like, Peter, we, you know, I got another way to do this, which he does. But the, the other way to do this, which is not Peter's way, is according to the scriptures. And they have to be. See that word? We've seen it already five times. Is it four times? In the opening chapters of Matthew, that prophecy, scripture, has to be fulfilled. It has to be done God's way. And that's what gets us all twisted up and in trouble is when we don't do things God's way. The scriptures must be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way. So, now, let's, you know, God has omnipotence. He's omniscient. He's sovereign. That should be enough for you and me to know that he can control history and control my life. Or do, or really, I shouldn't say control my life because we have free will but to control my circumstances or to change my circumstances. But yet, here we have a physical description, something that we can see, at least on the pages of Scripture. Thousands upon thousands of angels, myriads upon myriads standing before him, millions of angelic soldiers, millions of angelic attendants. They're all around him. He can send them out at any time. Jesus just told us that. All i got to do is ask. All God has got to do is say, go. All, you don't need thousands. All you need is one. To change things. What? Do you doubt that God is in control of history? Do you doubt that he is in perfect control of the circumstances of your life? God helps us here by showing us the angels. He doesn't have to. All he has to do is say, look, I'm sovereign, I'm omnipotent. And that should be enough. He shows us the angels to help us. Because when we see and picture in our minds, like Daniel sees here, this throne with myriads of angels, we understand that God could send them out at any time. Now, the vision now moves away from God and the throne Back to one of these beasts that he saw at the beginning of chapter 7. And this is the one. Okay, So this is the, he's going to talk about this little horn. This horn is, this little beast, is the Antichrist. All right, so, and we know this. We looked at this a little bit in 2 Thessalonians. That this Now, this uh, little horn, this boastful horn, is actually... Uh, of the beasts, the one who is the ruler of the ultimate kingdoms of men. Right? This is the last kingdom, Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 13, the beast comes on the scene. He rules the world. Yeah, that, this is him. And he's here. Daniel sees him. Now, it's, it's this vision of this human kingdom 
that is evil and against the truth and against the Lord and persecutes the saints is sandwiched in between the vision of the Father and the vision of the Son. And that's incredibly significant. Look at Daniel 7.11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And this, this horn, this is the Antichrist. Uh, it's all, right? You see this? Like Daniel, he doesn't really see him at first. He hears him. And this, oh, he's boastful. What have we talked about? We talked about it on Tuesday a little bit yesterday. The problem of our sin nature, the ultimate problem is our pride. Our pride in this. Here he is, this ultimate of human kings or human kingdoms. The horn was speaking. At the sound of his boastful words, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. An extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So... That has a different meaning we don't have time for. But they're destroyed. Yeah? So we see the Father with his multiple angels. We see this ultimate kingdom of men that is going to, you know, really rule the world and say, you know, whatever, get lost to God. They fail. They die. And then, verse 13, we see the Son of Man. This is the kingdom of that John is saying is at hand. I mean, if you're a Jew who knows this passage, and you do, if you believe this, good Lord. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, who is God, and presented himself before him. I say, God the Father is the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's eternal. Now, just a few things from this before we end up here. First off, the title, Son of Man. It's of no real importance. Son of Man means he's human. Now, we know what Son of Man is. I think we do. Most of us do. Uh, But this is a title that's used by God to Ezekiel. God calls Ezekiel Son of Man a bunch of times in the book of Ezekiel. That's where it's used the most. It's used in a few other places in the Old Testament where it just refers to a person who is the Son of a Man. And so it means that he's a man. But there's something really strange about this man. First, he flies on the clouds, or he comes in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He come, Now, remember, there's thrones, plural, and this man is riding clouds. That's one thing. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, oh, you know a little bit more than anything about the Old Testament, we only ever see God roll, moving on clouds, only God. So that's one indication. He's on riding on clouds. That's a deity thing. And he's presented before him. And notice what is given to him. Dominion. Glory. You don't give glory to God. Dominion goes to God. And 
that people might serve him. And it's not just Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles. Notice it's it's peoples, nations, men of every language. They serve him. This is a word for worship. So he's given dominion. He's riding on clouds. He's given dominion. He's given glory. And his kingdom or his dominion won't pass away or be destroyed. And therefore it's eternal. And he's worshipped. And so somehow... Now, we know who this is. We say, ah, yeah, we know. I mean, come on, it's Jesus, right? He's the God-man. We know that. But if you're someone reading this before Christ comes, or you're one of those people in the wilderness who are listening to John, the Baptist, and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In this passage, you have a real situation in which a son of man, a man, is described in the characteristics of God. Now, at the time that this prophecy comes to Daniel, where is he? He's in Babylon. The people of God are in captivity. And there's another strange thing here. The people of God are in captivity, and God has these millions of angels around him, but no one's leaving heaven to go to earth to save his people. Nobody's leaving heaven, but some man is coming to heaven on the clouds. And so, God's solution to his people and their sins and their problems and their failures, God's solution is to not send angels to go fix it, but his solution is to bring this one, we know who he is, but at the time they don't know who he is, but to bring this one and give him dominion and sit him on a throne. And he's a man. That's awesome. He's called the Son of Man. He hasn't even been born yet. And so for this reason, many of the cults will say, how could he possibly be God? You've got to be crazy to think he's God. He's created. He is not. He is the eternal Son of God who somehow, some way, in a way that is a mystery to us that we don't understand, is the Son of Man and the Son of God. So here's the, this is the kingdom. Uh, in Matthew 2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, they reject, that's so he comes to earth, you know, the Son of Man who is on the throne, as we see here in Daniel 7. He comes to earth through the virgin birth, as we have seen. He is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, born of a virgin. He is not of Adam, but he is of David. Uh, He's the king, and he's presenting himself to Israel. They reject him. They don't repent, and they reject him. When he takes the offer of the kingdom off the table to that generation, he speaks to us in Matthew. Well, Matthew writes, uh, combines the parables in chapter 13, and reveals to us that this kingdom is not gone, it's just postponed. But, even though it's postponed, certain blessings of the kingdom would be given to the believers and it wouldn't be matter if they were Jew or Gentile in an age that no one had ever known about before and it's called the church. And in this church age, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Son of Man in you. 
He indwells you, Colossians 1.27. So we don't have the kingdom, and that will not come until he comes again. However, we do have the most important aspect of the kingdom within us, and that is the king. Therefore, all of your obedience and allegiance must be to him. Is God going to send his angels to fix your problems? Likely not. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Not that that matters. It doesn't matter if I've seen it. Will God do miracles in our age? Sure he will. For the most part, he doesn't. It would seem to me that what God wants us to do is to obey and to be happy in obeying, to have joy, to have strength, to have courage, because you can live the life of the kingdom even though you're not there yet. It's one of the, it has to be the most exciting callings that there is to live the way of the kingdom when you're in a resurrection body in heaven in the kingdom. It's easy, I would say. I would think it's easy. But to do it here now is a challenge. It's a great challenge. And a lot of people aren't up to it. But you can be. You can be one of the few who say, you know what, I have no other choice but to obey my king. This one who was presented to the Ancient of Days, who was given a throne in heaven, who is, yes, he's a man, but he's eternal God, is my king. No matter what happens to me here, to what happens to me on earth, I must um, have allegiance to him. And so I close with Psalm 2.12. I use the King James here because uh, the other modern translations don't use kiss. I like, I like kiss used by the... King James here. It says, kiss the son. 